You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Amen. If you have a copy of God's Word, go ahead and join me in John's Gospel, chapter 1. John chapter 1. While you're turning there, I want to... uh, uh, just mention a couple of things, maybe from a pastoral perspective. Uh, some of you are aware uh, that uh, this Sunday was the first time that our early service uh, moved over to the Family Life Center. We had about 75 folks in the uh, early service, and I expressed my gratitude to them because uh, many, if not most of them, have been regulars in the early service, and so it meant uh, some change for them moving over here, uh, and I appreciate that. I just want you to know that... Uh, Along with some of you, uh, as I'm getting older, uh, I find uh, change to be a little more difficult, uh, if that makes any sense. Uh, Like you mess up my sleep patterns and those kind of things, and I I kind of tend to get grumpy and that kind of stuff. Well, I'm just going to tell you right now that 2023 is going to be a huge year of change for First Baptist Church Van Alstine. Uh, you're seeing just a little bit of that in some of those images with the foundation being poured and all that God's doing uh, over on Colin McKinney Parkway. And while we are not anytime soon going to be abandoning this campus, in fact, we're planning to use both campuses for a time, uh, we know that change is coming. It just is. And I just want to say this um, and offer maybe some pastoral perspective. We never, ever want our identity to be found in a building. While buildings are important in our culture especially, uh, we live in a culture that uh, many people naturally associate a building with a church, uh, and we say, I'm going to the church, (laughs) And, and when we say that typically in the context of that statement, we mean we're going to a building, but we know, uh, biblically, theologically, that a building is not the church. Uh, And if you study church history, and particularly if you travel to Europe and other parts of the world, you will find some of the most beautiful Um, awe-inspiring even, uh, church structures that there are. Beautiful cathedrals. But what you'll also discover is that many, if not most of them, are now relics of a once lively, thriving body of believers. Many of them now are museums. Uh, And they're a testimony to uh, not a living faith, not a thriving community of faith, Uh, but of something that's very dead. And I also want to remind you this morning that there are churches, congregations, meeting, even this morning, the Lord's Day, and they are thriving, growing congregations, a family of believers, a body of believers, bringing people to faith in Jesus Christ. And some of those are meeting in uh, shopping centers, and some of those are meeting under a grove of trees in West Africa, perhaps, and other parts of the world. And so we never want our identity to be found in a building. Again, while buildings are important, and uh, I was over uh, on Colin McKinney Parkway around 5 o'clock on Friday morning as well, and I stood there and just wept at all God's doing. It's so exciting to see how God is providing uh, for all uh, that he has planned for us, and uh, it's it's super exciting. But there will never be a time, even though I I would just be honest with you personally, uh, from a physical uh, perspective especially, Uh, After all the meetings and all the things and all the planning and all the looking at plans and all of the decisions that have had to be made to bring us even to this point, I would like to think there's probably a point where we will all get to sit down in a new building and go, we've arrived. But there'll never be a time when we can say, we've arrived. 
that's not the way that God's designed the church. Uh, God's not called us as a body of believers to just build buildings. He's called us to make disciples. Uh, and so it does require uh, buildings to do that many times, and I'm thankful for the tools that God provides for us. I'm thankful that there was a group of people who had a vision to, to build this building a number of years ago, and I, I happen to know, just knowing a little bit of the history, that this building was a little controversial back in its day. Uh, and there's been some upgrades along the way, and aren't we thankful for that now? Um, uh, but God does amazing things and uses buildings. Uh, we never want to be guilty of loving things and using people. We want to use things so that we can best love people. And so I just want you to keep that in perspective. Uh, but that's not to say that I'm not excited for all that God's doing uh, on Colin McKinney Parkway. It's really glad. I'm really glad to know that pretty soon we're going to see some stuff start coming up out of the ground. And I'm in regular communication with uh, one of the uh, leaders at Lionheart, naturally. And he typically asks me to send him a picture or two. Well, over the last month or so... Um, there's not been a whole lot to send him. I mean, it doesn't look a whole lot different from day to day, but I know that there's a lot going on, and, uh, and I think we're going to start seeing that more and more uh, over the next few weeks and months, uh, but uh, I just want you to keep that in uh, perspective. So let's take our Bibles. John chapter 1. We're in a sermon series called Person of Interest. This is a study of John's gospel. Uh, and for the first four weeks of this series, we spent some time looking at John's thesis statement, uh, his purpose statement found in uh, chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. And then uh, we looked together at his prologue found in the first 18 verses of this first chapter where he sets the stage for the rest of the gospel. I mentioned last week that in those first 18 verses, uh, you don't find any imperatives. There are no commands to obey. There's truth to believe. Uh, and as we uh, kind of turn the corner here, we notice that things change a little bit. We're, we're in what's called a narrative passage now, and it becomes very important to us. Last week, we came to understand the ministry uh, of an unusual individual called John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, the forerunner of the Messiah. John the Baptist describes himself as one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. He was clearly called by God, commissioned to point others to Jesus, to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, if you're a believer in Christ this morning, I'm talking about someone who's turned from their sin to faith in Jesus Christ. I'm not asking you if you're a person who's kind of into church or uh, you've been fairly religious most of your life, but if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, I want you to think for a moment about how did you come to faith in Christ. I suspect that all of our journeys are similar in some ways, but also very distinctly different in other ways. Some of us came to faith in Christ at a very young age. I was eight years old when I uh, became a follower of Jesus Christ. Some of you didn't come to faith in Christ until uh, you were much older than that. And I know for many adult believers particularly, the answer goes back to your childhood and to uh, Christian parents. Maybe your testimony often begins with something like, I kind of grew up in a Christian home where it was assumed that we were going to church every Sunday and, and we were people of the word and, and those kinds of things. Uh, maybe it goes back to one Christian parent even. But what about those who didn't grow up in church? What about those who were not born into a Christian family where you were immersed in uh, talk of the things of God and uh, regular attendance at church and those kinds of things? What about those people? 
How do adults who don't know Jesus come to know him as their, uh, their Savior and their Lord? Several years ago, Leadership Journal reported uh, the findings of an interesting study. There was a pastor from Oceanside, California by the name of Mike Fleischman who actually engaged the help of sociologists and conducted some pretty extensive research on this very subject. And so here's what he found. This, these, are, these are his words. He said, what made the real difference with the unchurched were personal relationships. See, there was a day when the church largely had a, a dinner bell mentality. I kind of grew up in that culture in many respects. We would put together snazzy programs and things of that nature, and we would kind of ring the dinner bell, and people would come. A lot of times they would. They'd be drawn to those kinds of things. And, and, and we're not opposed to doing events and those kind of things, but, but that was largely the case. But what, what this study re, uh, revealed was that the real difference for the unchurched was actually personal relationships. He goes on to say, the majority who come to faith in Christ look back and say that it was a friend who influenced them toward faith in Christ. And he said this, in my interviews, over and over again, people shared about someone in relationship with them. The friendship may have been for a lifetime or maybe it was just for a season, but it was the right person at the right time that helped them come to faith in Christ. And he gives some examples. He said, Denise was befriended by a teacher at her daughter's daycare. Tom had a surfing buddy who came back from summer vacation totally changed by Jesus. John had a neighbor who loaned him tools and helped him do yard work. Phyllis was new in town and met another mom at the park who invited her to an Easter service. And then as a pastor, he said this, I place much more confidence in the people of my church than I used to. I understand now that most of them are far better situated to lead unchurched people to faith in Christ than I am even. And he said this, I've learned that if I do lead someone to faith in Christ, I will likely be wearing the friend hat and not the pastor hat. And I want to ask for a show of hands, but I suspect that uh, those of you who are followers of Christ this morning could point to someone, a significant someone in your life. Maybe it was a family member, maybe a parent, a grandparent, an aunt, an uncle, a teacher, uh, a coach, uh, that was instrumental in you coming to faith in Jesus Christ. But I suspect that the vast majority of us who are followers of Jesus would say that somewhere back there, there was some relationship involved. I know for me and for my testimony, it was a man by the name of Dan Arnold. I have tried on more than a couple of occasions to find Dan Arnold. Uh, Dan was a co-worker of my dad's in the insurance business in the early 70s, and he was consistent and persistent in inviting my dad and our family to church. It was a simple invitation. Just come to church with me. Sit with me. Basically, what he was saying is come and see. Come and see. And finally, my dad relented, and we as a family attended, for the first time, the First Free Will Baptist Church in Garland, Texas. I have since gone back there, and uh, that, that building no longer exists. But it was at that time in my life, as an eight-year-old kid sitting at a, at a, new, at a Thanksgiving Eve service, it was a Wednesday before Thanksgiving, and people were giving up, coming up, sharing their testimony, and all of them, without exception, were saying something along the lines, I'm just so thankful that I know Jesus Christ as my Savior and my Lord. And I sat there as a kid thinking, I, I not, don't know that. So later in that service, I came forward, and I knelt at the front with my dad, and he shared scripture with me, and I committed my life to Christ, and shortly afterwards was baptized.
but it was because of a relationship, a friendly work relationship of a guy who cared enough for our family, cared enough about my dad that he would invite us to attend church with him. You see, people coming to Christ through the invitation of a friend or a relative, that's nothing new. And today we read that at least two of Jesus' first disciples first came to know him because of the influence of a brother and a friend. Our passage today begins with John the Baptist again. He's repeating his testimony from the day before. Remember we talked about this. John the Baptist was was teaching, was preaching, was baptizing there in the wilderness. And as Jesus came upon the scene, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in today's passage, it's now the next day, John tells us in the narrative, and John is standing with two of his disciples, Andrew, and a second unnamed disciple who is most likely the author of this gospel, John. When Jesus walks by, and Jesus, as he walks by, John tells his disciples, look, the Lamb of God. This time, John's disciples actually respond to his message and leave John to follow Jesus. So let's pick it up in verse number 35 of chapter 1, and we're going to read down through the end of chapter 1 today. I hope that you'll follow along as I read. It says, The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, uh, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God descending, ascending and descending on the Son of Man. If you're paying attention to the text as I read it there this morning, you likely notice that there are some incredible exclamations that were made in this narrative. And I want us to kind of unpack those this morning for the few minutes that we're together. Notice the first one. We have found the Messiah. We have found the Messiah. And that was a a profoundly significant statement in the cultural context in which John is writing here. 
to say we have found the Messiah was a huge thing. You've got to realize the Jewish people for all these years have been reading of the coming Messiah, of the anointed one, the appointed one. Who is the Messiah? The Messiah is coming. John the Baptist here's job was to point to the coming Messiah. And so as these disciples turn to follow Jesus, they ask him where he's staying. And he responds simply with, come and see. We have no record of their conversation, nor do we know where they go with Jesus or even really how long they stay with him. We're not told where Jesus was staying in this fairly remote place far from their homes. We do find out something about their character in verse number 40. It says, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. I want you to notice the humility of both of these first two disciples. It's, it's, it's really fairly evident here. Most Bible scholars believe the unnamed disciple again is John himself, the writer of, of the gospel that we're looking at. But we don't know for sure because John never names himself in his gospel. Though he's a, a prominent leader in the early church, Probably by this time, the last living apostle, John, never names himself in his gospel account. And it, it appears that he wants all of the focus to be on Jesus. In fact, the only times that he does directly refer to himself, he simply calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. His identity was completely wrapped up in being loved by Jesus. Wouldn't it be amazing those of us who are Christ followers could say the same thing? You know, we live in a day today where there's a lot of confusion about identity, how people identify themselves, the way they want to be perceived, the way they want to be seen. We were talking with some folks between the two services this morning about social media and what that's done to us from a sociological standpoint and how people can now kind of like live fakey kind of lives on social media and, and it leads their friends to believe their life's amazing when in reality it isn't so amazing and, and all of those sorts of things. Wouldn't it be amazing... If we were most concerned about our identity being found in who we are in Jesus Christ. I was even reminded of this a few years ago. As a pastor, I had an opportunity with my wife Christy to go to a retreat in Mount Pleasant. And uh, when we got there, I was depleted in so many ways, physically, emotionally, even spiritually. And uh, we were required to have uh, one meal together with the rest of the group that was, uh, was retreating there with us on this ranch. There was about six or seven other couples we were sitting around the, the lunch table, and I said, kind of proudly in the moment, I said, being a pastor is not just what I do, it is who I am. And i got to be honest with you, when I said that, I felt like everybody sitting around the table would probably be a little impressed by that comment. You know what the facilitator said? He said, so who will you be when you can no longer be a pastor? That wasn't what I was expecting to hear in that moment. Who will you be when you can no longer be a pastor? You won't know who you are. And over the course of those few days that we were there together, Christy and I, we, uh, we spent a significant amount of time in God's Word, reading through the Psalms and all those things. And I was coming to grips with this whole thing of being a pastor can't be fundamentally my identity. Because what I've seen over the course of 30 for some years of ministry is pastors who do try to find their identity in, in what they do, in their ministry, in preaching, teaching, all of those sorts of things. They feel pretty good about themselves when things are going well. But when things aren't going so well, it's a different story. I know of pastors who literally make themselves sick 
as they look at attendance numbers and budget numbers and all of those things, and they feel like an abject failure week in and week out because their identity is so tied to what they do. And I think it's important for us to notice from the text today how important it was for John's identity to be found in Jesus Christ and his relationship with Christ. Now, the other disciple here is Andrew. He's named, immediately identified as Simon Peter's brother. Uh, those of you who have siblings, uh, if you're pretty close in age, maybe you went to the same school together at different times, uh, maybe you know what it's like for people to refer to you as so-and-so's brother or so-and-so's sister, okay? Well, that's kind of what we see here. Uh, this is significant because, again, in verse number 40, we have not yet been introduced to Simon Peter, but Simon Peter was so well-known uh, that Andrew was best known as Simon Peter's brother. Andrew is the first evangelist among the disciples, the first one to bring someone else to Jesus Christ. But his humility is evident in the fact that the man that he brought to Jesus ended up being a much more vocal and prominent leader in the early church than Andrew himself. Andrew was very determined to bring his brother to Jesus. As soon as he and John had spent enough time with Jesus to have the testimony of John the Baptist confirmed, validated by their own personal experience, he first went and found his brother Simon, and then he brought him to Jesus. His testimony to Simon was very simple and very clear, but incredibly significant. We have found the Messiah. We have found the Messiah. When Andrew brings Simon to Jesus, Jesus looks into Simon's eyes and he tells him not who he himself is, no, but who Simon is and, more significantly, who he will be in the future. It's mind-boggling for me to think that as an eight-year-old kid in Garland, Texas, at the First Free Will Baptist Church, when, when, I was, when I was drawn by the Holy Spirit of God and came to faith in Jesus Christ, God already knew then what he had planned for me in the future. That's mind-boggling to me. This is what I'm going to do with this kid who really isn't very gifted. He hates talking in front of people. The thought of even doing what I do every week just blew my mind when I was first called to ministry. And yet God knew all of that. I was convinced for a few years there that God had made a colossal mistake when he called me to ministry. So you see here... When, when Peter first meets Jesus, Jesus looks at him and says, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Jesus' words in that moment are thick with significance. You shall be called Cephas. John translated the Aramaic name Cephas into the Greek equivalent name Peter. But for us, the meaning is not Peter. The meaning in English actually is little rock. The meaning of names in the ancient world, again, especially among the Jewish people, was so much more important to their identity uh, than it is for us today. Today, parents tend to pick a child's name based upon kind of how it sounds, how it flows with their last name and so forth, whether it's pleasing to the ear or perhaps because there's a significant family connection. They're named after a, a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle or something like that. Check this out. Simon means he has heard or simply listened. It's an interesting name for a man who is better known for being quick and eager to speak than to listen. If you know anything about Peter, you know he was the one who was real quick to open his mouth and insert his foot. Pretty impetuous. Can you imagine as a parent naming your son Listen? And I know what some of your parents are probably thinking right now. I probably should have named my kid Listen. As many times as I've said that to him. 
But, but Jesus is not predicting the future in a prophecy here. So check this out. Jesus looks at Mr. He Has Heard, and he tells him, you will be called the rock, little rock. He's declaring to Simon Peter the work that Jesus himself will do in Simon's heart to make him Peter. By his words, which Peter, Peter will hear, and by his spirit, which Peter will receive by, through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus is going to make Peter into a key foundational early leader in his kingdom. When you study these disciples whom Jesus called early in his earthly ministry, they are the most unlikely band of dudes you could ever put together. I mean, as you continue to study the narrative of Jesus' early ministry and his time with his disciples, and people are just like, well, it's pretty obvious. They ain't very smart. But what we can tell is they've been with Jesus. Wouldn't it be amazing if people could say that about us? He's not the smartest guy. He's not the most eloquent, but it's obvious he's been with Jesus. And what you notice the second exclamation in the narrative today. We have found him. That sounds similar. We found the Messiah. This is the Messiah. But the narrative progresses to the next day. And the next day, the ESV says that Jesus decided to go to Galilee. I wrestled with that phrase just a little bit this past week. And that, I think that's a, a, a good enough understanding of the text. But the text more literally reads that he determined to go to Galilee. There's, there's a difference, I think, between just deciding to do something and determining to do something. And so he found Philip, and Jesus said to him, follow me. The context of verses 40 through 42 here seem to indicate that Andrew is still the main subject. So listen to a more literal reading of the four verses together, verses 40 through 43. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, he decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. And when you hear it that way, it seems like Andrew decided to go to Galilee. In Galilee, Andrew found Philip. And then Jesus said to Philip, Follow me. Now, it's not a critically important point. I don't want to spend time splitting hairs over this phrase this morning. Uh, I will say that, that that reading is actually advocated by a fair amount of scholars, people much smarter than I am. But here's the thing. Even if we're misreading it, and it was Jesus who decided to go to Galilee and who found Philip, then Jesus himself not only called Philip to follow him, but sought him out in order to call Philip to follow him. Let's talk about those those important words, follow me for a moment. Some of you might remember that several years ago I preached a series of messages on the 12 disciples of Jesus. And we called that series, Follow Me. So whether it was Andrew who brought Philip to Jesus or Jesus himself who sought out Philip, Philip is still the first disciple in John's gospel to hear the simple and clear call from Jesus, follow me. And Philip responded. The call of Jesus is so simple, so simple, that I think we can easily complicate it. Jesus is Lord, and he calls us to follow him. Once we respond to his call and begin following him, we learn all sorts of things about him. And we grow in our knowledge and understanding of the gospel, the Bible, and theology. But the call to follow is simple and powerful and life-changing, even if our knowledge is limited and very uh, incomplete. 
I think about again as an eight-year-old boy. To suggest to you today that I had a firm and full grasp on all things related to Scripture and the gospel and reconciliation and all those things, sanctification, would be ridiculous. What I did know was that I was the sinner in need of a Savior, that a perfect man by the name of Jesus, God come in the flesh, died in my place so that I could be reconciled to holy God as a sinful human being. I did know that. I think over time, as I've grown in my faith and grown in my relationship with the Lord and I've spent time with the Lord, I've come to better understand all that that means. Still can't fully wrap my mind around it. I think sometimes we think, well, i, I kind of got to get this all figured out. I've got to have all the answers and everything. And I, I, it, it's, that's why I think Scripture refers to it as a childlike faith. But then I want you to notice what he says. He says, this is he of whom Moses and the prophets wrote. After spending some time with Jesus, Philip immediately did the same thing Andrew did. Only he went and he found a friend instead of his brother. Philip went and found a guy by the name of Nathaniel, who would later become better known as Bartholomew. And he told him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. The way Philip expressed himself to Nathaniel shows that both men were students of the scriptures. They both knew that Moses and the prophets and what they wrote about the Messiah, they knew that the scriptures were given to point the people of God toward their true and righteous king. And Philip said, we have found him. The one that we've been reading about. The one that we've studied about. And then notice Nathaniel's response. It's become fairly well known. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Some of you that are from a fairly small town, kind of out-of-the-way place, I remember Zig Ziglar. Some of y'all are old enough to remember Zig Ziglar. Uh, he taught Sunday school for years, I think, at Prestonwood and maybe even at First Dallas. You know, uh, Zig Ziglar was from Yazoo City, Mississippi. And he would talk about being from Yazoo City, Mississippi. I mean, who's ever heard of Yazoo City, Mississippi, right? Uh, and so it, it wouldn't have been that uncommon for somebody to say something like, can any good thing come out of Yazoo City, Mississippi? That's kind of what Nathaniel says here. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Now, it is possible that Philip's response reflects his disdain for the little town of Nazareth. Um, Philip and Nathaniel were both from Bethsaida. There may have been a bit of rivalry and snobbery involved in this comment. I don't think it had anything to do with high school football, um, but... But it kind of gives you an idea of sometimes how people can feel about it. If you grew up in a town and, you know, you had your rival and all that stuff, you'd say, oh, come on, you know. Well, but there's another way to read, I think, Nathaniel's comment, though. Philip had said that they had found the one about whom Moses and the prophets had written, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, it's possible that Nathaniel may just have meant that he didn't think that the promises of the Scriptures connect the Messiah to Nazareth at all. In other words, Moses and the prophets don't say anything about the Messiah coming from Nazareth. Most Jewish people knew that Micah was the prophet that had clearly said that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. So what was less commonly known was the reference to messianic hope in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, where it says this, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea. 
the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. And so while Isaiah doesn't specifically name Nazareth there, he very clearly does speak of the area where Nazareth is located and where Jesus spent the majority of his earthly ministry. In the territories of Zebulun and Naphtali, the area known as Galilee. If you ever have the opportunity to tour the Holy Land, to go to Israel, if you have a good guide, they will certainly make it clear to you that most of Jesus' ministry happened in that proximity, in that area. All around Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, this little, really, it's a fairly small body of water, actually. That's where most of it happened. So while Isaiah doesn't specifically name Nazareth, it's clear that he references that region. But instead of engaging in some kind of a debate with Nathaniel about Micah and Isaiah and Bethlehem and Galilee, Philip says the same simple words to Nathaniel that Jesus had earlier said to Andrew and, and, and to John. He says, come and see. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Come and see. Come and see. What a simple invitation, huh? Then I want you to notice a third exclamation that's made here. It's significant. The Son of God, the King of Israel. Before we, we get to that, though, we've got to notice Jesus' keen insight. It's pretty amazing. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, and he said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. I think the old King James Version says, In whom is no guile. So Jesus sees Nathanael coming from a distance with Philip, and he declares that he knows Nathanael's character, that he is a genuine Israelite, not a fake one, literally a true, genuine Israelite, or even an Israelite of the truth. Jesus knows that Nathanael was an honest man, not some mask-wearing, role-playing hypocrite. In fact, Jesus would often condemn such hypocrisy over the course of his earthly ministry, especially as he had these dust-ups with the Pharisees, right? You a bunch of hypocrites. You look all great on the outside, but on the inside, you're like full of dead man's bones. And so Jesus had this keen perception, this insight that was certainly divine, I believe. And he knew this. He wasn't just going to be... Think of it this way. Imagine yourself walking through a busy airport terminal, for example. And an individual who you, you, you do not know, never seen him in your life, they walk up to you and say, you are a good person. You are highly charactered. You are motivated. You're dependable. You're... There's, a, there's some point in all that where you, you can probably lay aside the, you know, the flattered feeling and you're going to go, how do you know these things about me? How do you even know that? Well, well that was Nathaniel's, that was kind of his response. He, he wasn't going to, he, he wasn't rude, but he was, he was, he was just honest. And he goes, how do you know me? How is it possible that, that you can know me? <laughs> of course, Jesus' answer stuns Nathaniel. Nathaniel is, is even, more, uh, even more than this initial proclamation about his character. Jesus says, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Instantly, Nathaniel grasps the obvious. This is no ordinary man. We don't know exactly what Nathaniel was doing or thinking under the fig tree. It's possible that he uh, was maybe praying, for example. Certainly knew that Jesus wasn't around to be able to see him in any ordinary sense. 
He knew that Jesus must be someone really special sent by God himself. So Nathaniel says, Rabbi, and here's the exclamation, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Nathaniel's confession is one of the truest, clearest, most powerful made in the entire gospel of John until Thomas says to Jesus in chapter 20, verse 28, my Lord and my God. Nathaniel calls Jesus the son of God and professes him to be the true and rightful king of Israel. So again, Nathaniel, who obviously knew the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, probably thinking of Psalm 2, the great coronation psalm for Messiah, which declares Messiah to be not only the king of Israel, but the son of God, the ruler of the nations. So at this point, Nathaniel is probably still hoping for a nationalistic, military, political deliverance for Israel. But even if his hope of deliverance is a little misguided, his understanding of who Jesus is certainly isn't. He is the first to offer such clear understanding, and we can know that his profession is sincere and from the heart. But then notice Jesus' response to that. Jesus responds to Nathaniel's great confession with a promise that probably left Nathaniel even more stunned. He says, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. If Nathaniel was to type in an emoji in that moment, it would have been the one that... Like this statement is just making my head explode. Like this is my... I will see greater things than these. Like a person who can see me coming from a distance I've never met before and he knows me. I've never felt more known and seen in my life. That's one of the things that we need to remember. We got people all around us every day drinking coffee in the same place we drink coffee, shopping in the same stores, working at the same establishments, all of those things, who what they long for more than anything in this world is to be seen and known. To be seen and known. That's who Jesus is. I see you. I know you. I know everything about you. You see, I think the truth is, some of us think that somehow we've kind of pulled one over on Jesus a time or two. But Jesus, if you knew everything about me, you probably wouldn't be suggesting that you can use me. I don't know. Seen and known. So check this out. Jesus tells him, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened. And the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus' promise to Nathaniel was obviously intended for a man who knew the Scriptures. I want you to see the connection here real quickly. Jesus combined two images from Scripture. Jacob's ladder from Genesis chapter 28 and the Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7. In Genesis chapter 28, if you're not familiar with the text there, God reassured a panicked guy by the name of Jacob, who would later become Israel, who was fleeing for his life from his home and his brother Esau, of his covenant promises. God had chosen Jacob, and even though Jacob was not yet a man of faith, God reaffirmed his covenant promises to Jacob in a dream. Jacob saw in that dream a ladder reaching heaven and, and touching earth, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the ladder. Jesus is now saying that he, as the Son of Man, is the ladder that Jacob saw and that Nathaniel would see it too. 
The son of man is a reference to Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel saw one like a son of man who received an eternal kingdom of worldwide dominion from God himself, the ancient of days. And behold, he says, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion and everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Isn't that awesome? Jesus is telling Nathaniel that he himself will be the bridge between heaven and earth. He will reconcile holy God and sinful man. And in doing so, he will receive a kingdom from God the Father that will extend over the whole world and will never end. And Nathaniel will see it himself. You see, ultimately the words of Jesus here were fulfilled in his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, which Nathaniel would witness By his death on the cross, Jesus reconciles holy God and sinful man, providing a bridge between heaven and earth by his own sacrificial death. By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1. In his ascension back to heaven, to the right hand of God the Father, Jesus was enthroned as the eternal King of kings and Lord of lords. So what can appear... If you just glance at the text here, just kind of a couple of fairly ordinary days in the early life of Jesus, his earthly ministry, it's really much more than that. And I think the question rings out to us today, do you know him? I'm not asking you to know about him. In the way that I could ask you this morning, do you know Abraham Lincoln? You might say, well, yeah, I studied about him in American history, and I I know that he was assassinated by John Wilkes Booth. No, 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 that's not what I'm asking you. I'm asking you, do, do you know Jesus? Because Jesus has no desire to just simply be known as some historical figure, great teacher, revolutionary leader. He wants to be in relationship with us. That's why Jesus said to these early disciples, follow me. Follow me. So the idea for an early disciple was that you would follow your rabbi, your teacher, so closely that their dust would literally be kicked up on you. If you were a disciple, you wanted to be covered in the dust of your rabbi. (laughs) Do you know Jesus in that way? I'm not asking if you've done church or you're into religion. I'm talking about do you know him as your Savior and your Lord? If you, if you could say, well, I'm, I'm not real sure. I'm, I'm, I'm searching. I'm seeking. I'm kind of checking it out. Then I would just simply say to you, come and see. Come and see. Maybe that's what you're doing here this morning. You've, you've come and, and you're, 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 you're checking it out. Someone's invited you to come and see. That's awesome. I would invite you to take a step of faith whereby you acknowledge that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. That all sin must be punished. And it was punished in the person of Jesus Christ who died on the cross in our place. So you can be reconciled to holy God. If you're here today and your testimony is one of faith in Jesus Christ, you can truthfully say, I know him as my Savior and my Lord. Then I would ask you what you're doing to leverage your relationships, your influence, 
your friendships, your connections for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're pretty quick to share good news about a lot of things. Ask some of these people who have a new grandbaby right now. They'll be glad to tell you about it. Uh, I'm pretty proud that my son just recently got engaged, and so we got a wedding coming up, and we'll tell you all about it. I think we're going to see a wedding venue this afternoon. In fact, it's pretty amazing. That's because that's good news, right? That's something we're sharing. I'm going to tell you something. The good news of the gospel makes all the good news on this earth pale in significance. (laughs) It's the best news that you could possibly share. So with our heads bowed, our eyes closed for just a moment this morning. Maybe you're that person who needs to come and see. And for you, that may mean continuing a conversation with someone that you know loves and cares about you very much. That may mean coming back to church next week so that you can continue to come and see. Maybe you're at the place where you're ready to take that step of faith. Enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I'm reasonably certain that there are some here today, whether you're here in the room or you're watching online, you would say, I'm thankful to have a testimony of faith in Jesus Christ, but if I'm completely honest, I'm not leveraging my relationships, I'm not stewarding my, my time, my influence in such a way that the most important thing that people know about me is my relationship with Jesus Christ. What a shame it would be to be in a long-time relationship with someone, whether it's through work through your neighborhood, whatever it may be, only for them to discover after several years that you are, in fact, a follower of Jesus. And they're surprised by that. Father, I thank you for your word today. I thank you for how clear it is to us, even as we follow this simple narrative of a couple of days in Jesus earthly ministry, as he's calling those initial disciples to come after him, to follow him. I thank you for the witness that we see as those disciples followed you, that they loved and cared enough about others to introduce them to Jesus, to bring them to Jesus. Help us, Lord, to be that kind of disciple. If there's anyone here today that doesn't yet know you as Savior and Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit and the power of your word that they are drawn to you today. For we love you. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.